Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you're in a, a very small plane, a light plane, and you're about to take off. You look over and you see on the other side of the aisle, you see a, a, a fellow passenger in chains, chained at the wrists and chained at the ankles and chained to the seat. And as you follow that chain, you say, whoa, wait a minute. The, the chain goes out of the aircraft and it's chained and attached to a car and to a large bus and to the terminal building. Isn't that a little bit strange? If you were the pilot, would you proceed to taxi away and try to take off in such a situation? I don't think so. You say, listen, my friend, you're going to have to lose the chains or we're going to have to lose you. Because the way things are, if we proceed, you're going to get very hurt and probably the rest of us as well. You can't take off and go up into the heavens if you're chained to the things that are on this earth. Now the church is on its way to glory. And the closer we get to the new Jerusalem, the further we move away from the Egypt of our sin. The more we grow in love for Christ, the more we hate and flee from sin. In our spiritual life, we are always moving. We're moving forward, or we're sliding backwards, or we're running the wrong way, but we're never stopped. Now, love for Christ and love for sin are just incompatible. If somebody embraces sin, if somebody holds on to sin, if somebody nurtures sin in his heart, doesn't want to let go of it, if someone remains chained to sin and under sin's dominion, then that person simply by definition cannot belong to a company of people who have been liberated, who are free, and who are running as fast as they can away from their former slave master. The Christian church is a community of faith. What unites us to each other and all of us to Christ is the faith that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. But faith is not just some emotion. Faith is not just some knowledge. Faith looks like something in daily life. Faith knows glorious gospel truths and it recognizes them not just as abstract facts, but as real life-changing truths. And then faith takes those truths and lives by them. The words and deeds of the Christian are governed by God as he reveals himself to us in the word inscripturated, in the word made flesh in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we're sitting at the Lord's table together, 
That is a sublime moment of experiencing and delighting in that union that we have with Christ. We are his body and individually members of it. And the life, the, the spirit who is in Christ, that same spirit lives in each one of us and lives in the midst of us as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that has consequences. Paul says to the Corinthians that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And the opposite's also true. If someone says in their words or their life or their doctrine, if someone says Jesus is accursed, if someone lives in such a way that they're basically saying, Jesus be damned, then they're not giving evidences of having the Spirit. They're not giving evidence of being living members of the body of Christ. They're cut off from Christ and, and from his body. And for the body of Christ, for the church, to tolerate unbelieving and ungodly members in its fellowship would be like for one of us to accept living with a dead and a gangrenous member in our bodies. What do you do if you are in the unfortunate situation that one of the members of your body has died, is full of gangrene, is putrefying. What do you do? You ask the doctor, cut it off quick, or else it's going to spread. That's why we confessed last Sunday already, in Lord's Day 30, that unbelieving and ungodly and unrepentant sinners do not belong at the sacrament which speaks of the most intimate communion that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ and with each other. Now, it's important that we remember that the supper is for sinners, but it's for repentant sinners, not for impenitent sinners. And the impenitent do not belong and should be excluded, not because we don't want them, not because we don't like them, not because God is not ready to receive them and forgive them if they repent and believe, but the impenitent, the impenitent, the ungodly, must be excluded because as long as they continue in their love for sin, they trample underfoot the Son of God, the blood of the Son of God. They profane the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, and they outrage the Spirit of grace. You see, unrepented sin is a cancer to the body of Christ. And what do you do with cancer? You, you cut it out. You cut it out because it's trying to kill you. So you get rid of it if you can. And so in Lord's Day 30, we confessed that last week. We, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. So we're talking about the keys. Does that mean then that the elders and the ministers have this special power 
that they get to decide who is included and who is excluded, who is in and who is out, who is acceptable and who is not acceptable? Are they the gatekeepers? No. We read Isaiah chapter 22, verse 20. In the context, God is speaking about replacing a steward, an overseer of the royal house of David. And as an overseer, he carries a sign of the authority of that royal house on his shoulder. It's not his authority. He exercises it in the name of the Davidic king. He is under authority, and he implements his master's will. The whole reason in Isaiah chapter 22 why he's getting the job is because the last guy lost the plot. The last guy thought, it's all about me. I am great. I am glorious. And he started thinking and acting like he was a king. So God says, you're out of here. There's a new guy that's going to be put in your place. We turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, which we also read. And we learned there, we saw that, that the eternal king on David's throne, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is he who has the key. It is he who has the power of opening and closing, of including and excluding, of accepting and rejecting. And if he opens, no one can shut. Not all the elders in the world can shut if Jesus has opened. Not all the elders in the world can open if Jesus has shut. You see, elders are stewards under his authority. They merely implement what he wills, what he commands, what he ordains. And it is in that light, with that background, with that backdrop that we need to understand the giving of the keys to the apostles and in and through them to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. The Lord Jesus says the following to his disciples. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there they are, stewards of the royal son of David, the eternal Davidic king, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an awesome responsibility that they must, must exercise under and in his authority. Turn to John chapter 20, verse 23. There's a similar occasion there. John 20, verse 23. I'll just read 22 as well. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now the church over the last 2,000 years, the medieval church before the Reformation made the mistake of thinking, hey, it's all about us. We have the power to forgive. So we can even sell forgiveness. We can sell indulgences and, 
And we can have little setups at the back of the church where people have to go talk to the priest, and then the priest will give them absolution. Because if we forgive, then sins are forgiven. If we withhold forgiveness, then there is no forgiveness. They forgot that this is all delegated authority in and under the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul didn't forget that. If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that Paul has a very good understanding of what's happening and what's, what it's all about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Let me see if I've got the right... Oh, I'm at 1 Corinthians, that's why. Okay, let me just switch to the next book here. 2 Corinthians... Chapter 5, verse 15. So he says here, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. It's all about Christ. It's all centered in and focused on him. All this, verse 18, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So who's doing the reconciling is Christ. The apostles just minister that. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It is God who's doing the reconciling. It is God who is not counting the trespasses. It is God who's doing the forgiving. And we're just the messengers. That's all we are. The message of reconciliation is entrusted to us. His message, we're the servants. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Christ making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Of God. What is Paul doing? What is he saying here? He understands that his position, his authority, his ministry, his office is from God, that it is a delegated authority, that he has been entrusted with a message, that he is an ambassador, that God is making his appeal through his ambassadors, that he is imploring people not on his own authority but on behalf of of Christ. Now the word ambassador is very important here. What does an ambassador do and what does an ambassador not do? Well, an ambassador represents and passes on. He doesn't decide. The ambassador doesn't decide policy. The ambassador doesn't decide who is a friend and who is an enemy, who to declare war against and who to make peace with. That's done by the king. The ambassador follows orders. The ambassador communicates the will of the king who sent him. 
And any ambassador that steps out of the sphere of his authority is a bad ambassador and will lose his job very quickly. You see, that's exactly what the church does. The church in her prophetic office, the preachers, the elders, the deacons, but also the parents and and all of us members, because we are all prophets and priests and kings, we all have office. The church proclaims and publicly testifies that God has really forgiven all those who believe all of their sins. And when we do that, we're not telling people, we're forgiving you. We're just passing on the message. So what happens in Philippi, for instance, when the jailer falls on his knees before Paul and he says, what do I need to do to be saved? What is the answer of the apostle? Does he say, well, you need to do what we say. You need to follow our rules. You need to conform your thoughts to our thoughts. You need to live the way we live. No. What does it say? Acts 16 verse 31. And they said, believe. It's that simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. That's how you open the kingdom. You point to Christ. You speak the word of Christ. You testify to Christ. You call people to believe in Christ. We don't open the kingdom when we go around trying to convince people to think like us and dress like us and act like us and vote like us and do church like us and have coffee and dessert before lunch on Sundays. That's not evangelism. That's not opening the kingdom. We open the kingdom when we proclaim the gospel. When we say to sinners, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died to forgive sinners like you and me. That's what we do from the pulpit in this church. That's what the elders and deacons do from home to home. And that's what the whole body of Christ, every member does as we live out the gospel in our neighborhoods and our places of work and study. So the gospel is opened, or the kingdom is opened by the preaching of the gospel, by the proclamation of the gospel. But the gospel preaching also closes the kingdom, and this is very important for us to remember. You see, the gospel is a double-edged sword, and one of the things that it does is that it cuts to life and it cuts to death. Now, we desire when we share the gospel with people, when we proclaim the gospel with people, we desire life. And sometimes we get very disappointed because we're met with hardness of heart and and stubbornness and scoffing and mocking and even sometimes foul language and, and blasphemy. And sometimes we can get discouraged about that. We say, well, Lord, I'm trying to, I'm trying to evangelize. I'm trying to, I'm trying to proclaim the gospel. And look at the, look at the reactions I'm getting. We, we should not be surprised, brother and sister, because the gospel, when it's faithfully preached and proclaimed, has two different reactions. There's the softening of the heart and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ by grace, but there's also the hardening of sinners in their unbelief. And that also brings glory to God. 
when you testify about the gospel, when you testify about the Lord Jesus Christ to someone, and they double down on their unbelief, on that great day when all men and women and children will be judged before the throne of God, that person will be condemned for their unbelief. And God will get more glory because they have shown more clearly why they ought to be condemned. They've actively rejected the gospel. And God will be seen to be a just and holy and righteous judge. Now, nevertheless, we need to be bold, but also gentle. We need to be like a good doctor who is speaking to the patient and telling them that they have cancer. There's a way to do that, and there's a way not to do that. If the doctor comes running in, screaming at the top of his lungs and shaking you and, and wild-eyed, and says, you got cancer, you got cancer, you got to do something about it, hurry, you're going to freak out. But if the doctor says, oh, it's okay, it's just a headache, and uh, just take a Tylenol and it should get better in the morning, that's not going to be good either, because he's going to be lying to you about your, the state of your health. What you need is a doctor who knows how to communicate the bad news and then present you with the good news about what treatments are available. We turn to John chapter 3, verse 36 for a moment. Let's open there, John 3, verse 36. We see here what kind of people we're dealing with when we're proclaiming the gospel to unbelieving sinners. John 3 36, the Lord Jesus speaking here, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And that word remains is very important. It doesn't say the wrath of God comes on him when he doesn't believe. It says the wrath of God remains on him. See, some Christians, they teach this. They say Jesus died for everyone. All of the sins of everyone were paid for on the cross. And the only way really to go to hell is if you make the mistake of refusing to believe. Which is a little bit strange because if the Lord Jesus died for all sins on the cross, and if not believing in Jesus is a sin, then didn't he die for that sin too? That's what the Armenian position would lead us to believe. And it's not coherent then in light of what the Scripture teaches. But the Bible teaches something different. The Bible teaches that all of us are children of wrath. The Bible teaches that as long as we remain in our sins, the wrath of God remains upon us. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5 for a moment. Ephesians 5, and we'll look at verses Three to six. The apostle, first of all, points out a kind of sinful life, a life which is which is engaged with and committed to sinning, which embraces sin and, and, and lust. Sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is what the gospel says. The gospel says, hey, every sinner is welcome to come in repentance. And there is room in the kingdom for all repentant sinners. The gospel also says, every impenitent sinner, everyone who loves sin more than he loves Christ, has no place in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It's very clear here in verse 5. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The apostle's clear here. The wrath of God doesn't come upon people just because they reject the gospel when they hear it. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience because of these things, because of these immoral and wicked and sinful and rebellious ways of living. So every sinner outside of Christ is under the wrath of God. The wrath of God remains on him. So what do we have to say to people that are sons of wrath? What do we have to say to people who are impenitent sinners? We need to preach the gospel to them. We need to proclaim the good news to them. We need to say, listen, you are living in a way which will lead you to be judged by God forever. But we want to call you to repent We want to call you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, not because we're nauseated by your sexual choices, not because we don't approve of your financial decisions or the way you live or your culture or just the way you decide things and what your priorities are. We want you to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You need him. Jesus, says Paul to the Thessalonian church, saves us from the wrath to come. That's important. You know, the church in the 21st century is often experimenting with a gospel which is all good news and has no bad news. Because it's more palatable. It sells better, especially if you're in the fancy, sophisticated centers of culture and power like New York and Washington and the big uh, metropolises of the world where all the sophisticated people are, the movers and the shakers. You don't want to tell those people that they're sinners, miserable sinners, unworthy sinners, that they are under the judgment and wrath of God and that unless they repent, they will spend all eternity in hell. That doesn't sell very well. It's hard to put that on an attractive pamphlet. It's hard to do a praise and worship session around that theme. And so the church tries to soft pedal or ignore the hard bits, the unpleasant bits in the gospel and focuses on the positive. You know, that's just a little bit weird, isn't it? I mean, imagine you go to the doctor and the doctor checks the tests and he's like, wow, this person has, has cancer. 
But I don't like to be a doctor's office which brings bad news. Let's concentrate on the positive. Your heart, your heart, your heart condition, very good. You're your excellent health. And uh, mentally, your acuity is, is just amazing. I'm just going to say the positive things, and, and I won't mention the negatives. You want a doctor like that? No, you don't want a doctor like that. You want a doctor that tells you the bad news so he can get to the good news. And that's what the church needs to do. The church is desperate in our times to be loved and to be admired by the world and to make the worship into entertainment and to calculate everything so that the sinner feels at home. But when the church does that, then she is entertaining and amusing the sinner to death. What the church needs to do is call sinners to repent and to believe. That's how the kingdom must be announced. That happens every Sunday from this pulpit too. The kingdom is opened as all sinners are called to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there also needs to be an element in faithful preaching where the kingdom is closed. Where people who love sin and love to be enslaved to their sin, they need to be told, there's no room for you in the kingdom of heaven. Stop fooling yourself. Stop thinking that you can go on limping between two opinions. Stop thinking that you can be chained to the things of this earth and still take off and be moved up into glory with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't work. So if you're living a double life, if you're living a life where you just love sin, it's delicious to you, you enjoy it, and you don't want to give it up, no matter what sin it is. If you're living that kind of a life, and you're managing to get away with it, and you're managing to fool the people around you, and you're managing to fool the elders, you need to know this, that you're not fooling God. And that sin that you're nurturing, that you're loving, that you're chaining yourself to, will kill you. It is destroying you, and it will destroy you forever unless you repent. And so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you today, repent and believe. Because we don't want to shut the kingdom to you. We want to open it to you. Repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what you have done, no matter what you're hooked on, no matter how foul the sin is that has gotten a hold of your soul. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is powerful enough to wash it away. To wash it away and to deal with all of the consequences. There's no one who is unredeemable. No one who is out of reach. Who is too far away for the Lord Jesus to take him, to take her into his loving arms. Well, that's the first part of our catechism the, the preaching, and then we briefly deal with the discipline in the end here. Question answer 85. And just like gospel proclamation, so also with, with church discipline, it's the office bearers that have the, the leading role, but the whole body is involved. Now, discipline begins with us. Discipline begins with self-discipline. We, we admonish ourselves as we read the scriptures, as we spend time in prayer with the Lord, as we spend time in good conversations, good Christian and upbuilding conversations, as we do Bible study and personal devotions. We admonish ourselves. 
We examine ourselves. We evaluate our progress in sanctification. And we cry out to God to make us grow in more and more holiness. Lord, make me more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where discipline starts. It starts with us. And then there's mutual discipline. In mutual discipline, we're, we're admonishing each other lovingly, gently. We say no to sin in the body of Christ. We say no, not because we like to tell other people what to do, not because we like to mind other people's business, but we say no because it's not good for you and it's not good for us. We say no because like the guy in the plane, if we see somebody that's chained up like that, we know it's not good for him and it's not good for the rest of us. It needs to be dealt with. Lose the chains. Because they're going to hurt you. They're going to hurt us. And then there's church discipline. There's self-discipline. There's mutual discipline. There's also church discipline. We don't have time to go into all the details right now. It's good to read the church order how it lays out the whole process. It's good to have that in your mind. It's good also to read the excommunication form and see all the different steps and all the different announcements. And what you see in the church order, what you also see in the confession of the church and what you see in the excommunication form, is you see a lot of patience and a lot of love in this process. There's a lot of sorrow. There's a lot of tears. There are a lot of prayers. There's a, lot of, there's a long process. And sometimes on the outside, if we're, if we're looking at a situation, we think, why didn't the elders cut that person off from the church yet? Look at the way they live. And we have no idea how many prayers have been offered up to the Lord. How many tears have been uh, poured out because of this person. How many visits and letters and how many attempts have been made to bring that person back into fellowship with the Lord and with his church. You see, discipline is not just uh, focused on getting rid of problem cases. Discipline is not just focused on dealing with a problem by losing the problem and forgetting the problem. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for a moment again, and this time in verse 3. Well, actually, not again. This is 1 Corinthians this time. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. Paul's speaking about a situation in the church where there is such a wicked thing going on that even the unbelievers are horrified by it. There's a perverse sin going on. And he says in chapter 5, verse 3 of his first letter to the Corinthians, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as, if, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh. That sounds horrifying. What does that mean, delivered to Satan? It means use the keys of the kingdom. When you're in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, you're in fellowship with him and his people. When you're out of the kingdom, you're in the realm of the kingdom of darkness. There's no neutral territory. There's no no man's land. It's the light or the darkness. It's heaven or hell. It's the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or it's the kingdom of the prince of darkness. And when a sinner is excluded from the church and shut out of the kingdom, they are delivered 
to Satan, which is exactly where they want to be. This whole process happens because the person says, I don't want to give up my sin. I love sin. I love my sin. I love enjoying my sin. I love being enslaved to sin. I love being under the dominion of sin. And the church says, okay. Then these are the consequences. This is where you belong, outside of the kingdom. But look at the last words in verse 5. Verse 5 begins with these horrifying words. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And then all of a sudden, the apostle says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? You see, church discipline shuts the kingdom to impenitent sinners. But that's not where the story ends. The whole process is so long and so full of prayer and visits and tears because the church wants so badly to see that sinner repent the church wants so badly to see that sinner turn from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be forgiven and be reconciled so that even after excommunication we still hold out the hope that while there is life there is hope that that person may come back. And it happens. It happens sometimes. But the Holy Spirit works powerfully in the the lives of people that have even been excommunicated. And that's why we have in our psalm book a form for readmission. That's the goal of discipline. The goal of discipline is love. The church rejoices when a sinner repents because the angels in heaven rejoice. Didn't the Lord Jesus tell us that? About the lost sheep parable? He says there's more joy amongst the angels in heaven when one sinner repents than over 99 that stay in the flock. See, the goal of Christian discipline is the glory of God and the holiness of the church and the salvation of the sinner. The church is not in the business of telling people you're out, and you're out, and you don't belong, and you go to hell, and you're going to go to hell. That's not what the church is all about. The church delights to share the good news. And the good news is this. You deserve hell. Jesus took it for you. Jesus died to set sinners free from the dominion of the devil. So stop holding on to hellish things. Stop skulking around along on a leash following sin and Satan as your master. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. So turn around and look to Christ and repent and believe because he is returning in glory to judge the living and the dead. And the depths of hell, trembling and defeated, will bow before him in terror. Now why on earth? Would you want to hitch your wagon to the depths of hell? Why on earth would you choose deliberately to be a part of that vanquished, pathetic kingdom, which will be under God's wrath and righteous judgment for all eternity? The church says to the sinner, stop it. Don't be a fool. Lose those chains. Look up. Seek the things that are above. Because there is another group on Judgment Day. A group of unworthy sinners like you and me. 
saved by grace and by love, kept forever in God's infinite love in Christ, trusting in his faithfulness, adoring Jesus, worshiping him forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. That's the message the church preaches, and that's the message we believe. Amen.